Read from God's Word, uh, from the book of Exodus. Two readings initially. First of all, in chapter 35, Exodus chapter 35, which is on page 95 of the Pew Bible. I I come in this morning, picked up the bulletin, looked at the front page and saw Liam Garvey speaking from Exodus chapter 3 with the title, Excuses, Excuses, and my first thought was, interesting. As I listened to Liam, I thought, even more interesting. I don't think things happen by accident. And there are a lot of parallels between what Liam's talked about this morning and what I hope to speak about this evening. So if you were challenged this morning, and it was a very challenging message, I hope that tonight you'll also be challenged by what God's Word has to say to us. First of all, let's read Exodus chapter 35, starting at verse 30. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic craftsmanship. And he has given both him and Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as craftsmen, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen, and weavers, all of them master craftsmen and designers. So Bezalel, Oholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord commanded. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Oholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. Let's turn over a few pages to chapter 39. Chapter 39, and we'll read the last two verses of that chapter. The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. And that is God's word, and we know that he will bless the reading of his word. What do you want to be? I'm sure you've asked that question, been asked that question, or at least been part of a conversation when you've heard those words. You can complete the question any way you want. When you leave school, when you're bigger, when you finish university, after your gap year, Or as my five foot six father said when he was asked the question, taller. (laughs) Some of you can probably remember back to when you were asked that question as a child. Maybe it wasn't that long ago. And perhaps the innocence of youth and the response that you gave then in your idealism causes you to smile. And then you remember it's work tomorrow morning and the smile disappears. The last time I heard the question asked to a group of people was around seven or eight weeks ago 
at the end of term brownies parent evening. All the brownies were sitting on the floor and they were asked the question and in turn they all jumped to their feet and gave the answer. Now the occupations, if you can describe them all as occupations, were the usual list of young girls' hopes and aspirations. Uh, We all smiled as we heard the brownies say, singer, teacher, dancer, vet, actress, singer, teacher, and then the sharp intake of breath from the assembled group, lawyer. (laughs) As I said, the innocence of youth. No doubt there is enough time for parents, brownie leaders, and anyone else involved in that child's life for corrective action. (laughs) Sorry, lawyers. I don't mean it too much. We then returned to normality. Teacher, dancer, vet, singer. And we all could go home relatively undisturbed. But I want us to think tonight about the question, what do you want to be? And to look at three answers to that question from the life of a very obscure person, that man that we read about called Bezalel. Perhaps the answers to the question will cause you to think, cause you to pause for breath in this fast-paced world, perhaps even to reassess where you are, and even reassess where you are if the answer that you want to give to the question is retired. So let's turn back to Exodus chapter 35. And in verse 30, the first thing that we notice is that Bezalel is chosen by God. Now, in case there's any doubt as to who this Bezalel was, he's narrowed down by his family tree. He's of the tribe of Judah. He's the grandson of Hur, and he's the son of Uri. I suspect that left Bezalel in no doubt whatsoever who he was. He's a pretty obscure character beyond the references to him in the last quarter of the book of Exodus. There's only one other reference to Bezalel in the whole Bible, and that's in that long list of genealogies in First Chronicles. We know that's our favorite readings. But apart from that, we know nothing about him. Absolutely nothing. But yet, The significance of this verse is that Bezalel was chosen by God. Bezalel was of the tribe of Judah, as we've already seen. That meant he was a Jew, a Hebrew, an Israelite. And that meant also for the second time in his life, he was chosen by God. I'm sure most of us know the story of how God chose the man Abraham of how Abraham received the promise to become the father of a large nation, of how his grandson and grandchildren, numbering 70, went to the land of Egypt to avoid famine, of how they became a large nation within Egypt, of how they became a security concern to the king of Egypt, who then forced them into slavery. How then eventually, as we heard this morning, God sent a man by the name of Moses to lead that people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and into the land that had been promised so many years before to Abraham. Then we have that great narrative of Exodus 12, 
where each household of the Israelites killed the lamb that had been set aside, where each household put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts, where each household had a meal of roasted lamb, and where unusually the household sat to eat eat the meal ready to travel. At midnight, the Lord passes over Egypt, and where there was no blood on the doorpost, the firstborn died. Before dawn, God's people were on their way from slavery. Bezalel was one of those people. Now, we don't know if he was the firstborn. He may have had an older sibling. If he had an older sibling, that sibling owed his life to the death of a lamb. If Bezalel was the firstborn, he owed his life to the death of a lamb. Now let's just pause and move off at a tangent slightly. Because this is an appropriate point to stop. And for me to ask a different question from our title this evening. And the question is very simply this. Do you owe your life to the death of a lamb? I'm not talking about your physical life. I'm not talking about the firstborn of all the Egyptians who died. I'm not talking about an animal. I'm talking about the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for sin. I think we all know that we're not perfect. We all have sin in our lives, from the greatest in the land to the lowest in the land. We're sinners. And that sin leads us to face a sentence of death, eternal death, under the judgment of God. But the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, died for us, so that when the blood that he shed is applied to our lives, the Lord sees the blood, not our guilt, and passes over. Look at the table below me, ready for communion. There are two things that we see. We see the bread signifying the broken body of Christ. We see the cup signifying his blood shed. It is a tangible reminder of his death. That's why we come to communion, to remember his death. So simply, I ask you one question. Have you been chosen by God? Do you know what it means to hear the call of God in your life? Do you know what it means to experience the new birth? To ask for forgiveness of sin? To repent of that sin? If not, you need to stop right here. There's no point going any further. And listen to God's call on your life. There's no point listening to the rest of the sermon if you haven't responded. If you haven't applied the blood of Christ to your own life. But let's go on. Bezalel was chosen for the second time. But this was slightly different. This wasn't a national event. This wasn't something that affected the nation. This was personal. But what was he chosen to do? Well, chapter 36 tells us that he was chosen to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary and to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. Well, what was the sanctuary? If you go back to Exodus chapter 25, you'll find out that it was the tabernacle and the furnishings for the tabernacle that God wanted made. I'm sure many of you, perhaps over a certain age, will have listened to many series of sermons about the tabernacle. Perhaps you've participated in many Bible studies. 
but you'll be relieved to know that we're not going to look at any of that detail tonight. But it's there, Exodus chapter 25 to chapter 30, in full detail of what was required for the tabernacle. But simply for Bezalel, all he had to do was to carry out the instruction given to Moses when Moses was in Mount Sinai and to do the work. God had chosen him to do it. Well, you may say, was that it? Is there anything more to it? Well, I think there is more to it. Because we read in verses 31 to 35 of chapter 30 how Bezalel was going to do it. First of all, we read that he was given an assistant by the name of Oholiab. And then we read that he was also given everything he needed to do the job. Now, it's quite an impressive CV he has. And I think he's the sort of guy that even Rodney Stout would have found useful. But what had God given him? First of all, he was given skill, a basic means of doing his job. He was given ability, the means of producing detail within his work. He was also given knowledge, the brain power to actually turn an idea into reality. What a combination. But on top of that, he was also given the ability to teach others. They often say about those who are on the sports field that those who can play and those who can't coach. But here was a man, Bezalel, who knew how to do it, and he also knew how to teach others to do it. There seems to be no end to his talents. He could work in producing designs with any precious metal. He could take precious stones and cut them into intricate shapes. He was an expert carpenter, although that probably minimizes the skill that he no doubt had. The Lord God had brought his people out of Egypt, brought them out of slavery. He needed something built that would be the focus of their worship, and he needed someone to build it. Bezalel was that man. Now, there's nothing unusual in that, because all the way through Scripture, God provides himself with a person to carry out a particular task at a specific time. But as I thought about Bezalel, there was something quite odd about him. And the one thing that struck me as being odd was that the Hebrews, the Israelites, were essentially a rural people. From the time of Abraham, they'd been keepers of animals and livestock. Even when Pharaoh told Moses and Aaron to get up and go out of Egypt, he said, take your flocks with you. So how did this group of farmers, in our modern term, have someone within them who was so skilled in what he could do? Well, I think we need to look back to see what was happening to Israel within their time in Egypt. The biblical record of the Hebrew slavery tells us that they were making bricks, not exciting. No doubt for some of the great construction projects that the Egyptians undertook, and of course some are still left today. We also know that the Hebrews had their own foremen. So within this group of brickmakers, within this group of foremen, somewhere was Bezalel. We don't know what he did, we don't have a record of that, but he had to be there because he was a slave in Egypt. Now, I suspect that Bezalel would rather not have been in slavery. 
I suspect he would rather not have been making the bricks or collecting the straw for the bricks or managing the project or being a manager of slaves. But he was, and I believe that is key. The experience that Bezalel gained in the adversity of his own people was later put to the use of the benefit of his people. And this is a principle that we see throughout Scripture again. The Lord uses individuals' experiences of life to shape them into people he wants them to be. He uses their abilities for him. He uses their temperament even for him. We don't need to go back more than a few weeks to think about the series we did in Nehemiah. Did Nehemiah want to be in exile? I suspect not. Did Nehemiah want to be working for a foreign king? I suspect not. But was Nehemiah's experience of working in that palace put to good use? Absolutely yes. What about us? What do we think? Do we see our experiences of life molding us in a way that makes us useful for God? Now let's not over-exaggerate this by analyzing every minutiae of life. If you do that, you get yourselves into trouble. But we're all shaped by the events that happen around us. We're all shaped by the people who are with us. Things that are close to us assist us in our development. So when God comes asking for us to do his work, what do we do? The New Testament gives us a full list of gifts In the same way that God wanted someone to use a hammer and a chisel to teach others how to use a hammer and a chisel to manage a major building project, so he also wants pastors and teachers, evangelists, encouragers, those who show mercy, and administrators. And that's not the complete list. It doesn't really matter whether we're in adversity, whether we're in slavery or not, whether life's been good or tough, whether we think we have the abilities or not. The question is, are we willing to use what God has given us? Now, those of you who are still awake at this stage and observant will notice that I've left something out. Let's go back to verse 31. It says, The Lord has filled him with the Spirit of of God. For those of us who have accepted the call of God on our lives, who have responded to the claim of Christ in terms of salvation, we have also been given the Spirit of God. We have that the whole way through the New Testament. This morning it was emphasized to us over and over again that Moses had the presence of God guaranteed. It was an assurance that when he went into Egypt, God was going to be with him. In fact, God was going to be before him. For us living in the 21st century, it's no different. We can be assured of the presence of the Spirit of God as we take up the work that God has appointed for us, that God has equipped us for. So, if God has chosen us, equipped us and promised us his enduring presence what's our response 
Well, very simply, let's turn to chapter 39. And it says, in verse 42, the Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord Lord had commanded Moses. So secondly and simply, Bezalel was obedient to God. Now, he had a very clear role model in this. Moses was the human leader. What did he do? Well, simply, he was obedient also. The words that we read this evening in chapter 35 are an almost verbatim repetition of what Moses had been given by God on Mount Sinai in chapter 31. You can look it up later to confirm that. Moses was told that God had chosen this skilled individual to carry out the building work. It's a very simple lesson for us all. Over time, we've been given this written record, this written record, of how God has interacted with man over many years. And within this record, we're given many commands. So what should we do with them? Discuss them? Have a cup of coffee over them? Have an argument about them? As I've heard some people say, pray over them? Uh, No, just do them. Simple as that. We are to obey. Called to obedience. Now the work was done exactly as the Lord had commanded Moses. This is important. Moses had received comprehensive instructions about what had to be built. Five chapters worth in our modern Bible. Moses passed those instructions on in detail and the job was completed the way it had to be done. Look at Moses' reaction when the work was done. He inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. The team had done the work. Bezalel, Oholiab, and everyone else who was skilled had carried out the job. I love Second World War movies. I can't help it. And the little boy in me just loves The Great Escape. The theme tune's enough. Um, If you want to know what really happened, read the book and don't watch the film. But you remember the story. All the top escapers during the war are brought into the one camp. So what do they do? Well, they're the top escapers, so they try to escape, naturally. So they organize themselves into a group to try and get all the prisoners out of the camp. But how do they do it? Well, every person is given a job. There was the planner who made all the arrangements, oversaw everything. There was the intelligence officer whose job was to find out what was going on inside and outside the camp. There was the tunneler, the guy who did all the hard graft. There was the forger who was responsible for producing the travel documents. There was the tailor. You needed a tailor. You couldn't have people running around Germany in RAF uniforms. It wasn't the normal mode of dress, so they needed someone to make clothes. They had a surveyor to, to estimate the distance it was to the forest so they could escape in the darkness. And they had a security officer whose job was to prevent the enemy from finding out what was going on. Now, could you imagine the chaos if everyone wanted to do everyone else's job? 
Everybody wants to be the tunneler. Can't imagine why, but everybody wants to be the tunneler. Well, there would have been lots of tunnels built very, very quickly, but no doubt they would have been discovered. And what did you do when you get to the other end of the tunnel? You had no travel documents, you had no clothes to wear. What happened if you wanted to be the forger? If everyone had been the forger, there would have been great documents, but there would have been no tunnel to get out of. The documents would have been useful. Everyone had a job to do, and they did it. Now, within a local church, it is no different. We all have things to do, but we all can't do the same thing. But the key thing is that the work of God is carried out. But it's carried out just as he commands it. Whatever your gift is, use it. Whatever your gift isn't, leave it alone. Now, there was lots of scope for things to go wrong within the work that Bezalel was undertaking. At any stage, one of these things may have happened. I'm Moses. I'm the leader. I'm going to build it. Bezalel, he's not the right person to do the job. There's a better craftsman in the tribe of Reuben. Or, I've seen those Egyptian altars. They're way better than what the Lord wants us to make. Blue, purple, and scarlet, last season's colors. I've got a great green that would work. Now, those comments may seem slightly flippant. But in the light of what happened to the children of Israel... Past the book of Exodus, they are not. Because time and time again, in Scripture, we see that people want to do things their way. We don't have to look far to see what happened with Bezalel and Moses. Throughout the book of Numbers, the Israelites rebelled regularly. Ultimately, they refused to believe that God would take them into the land that was promised, the land that was given to Abraham so many years ago. Norman read at the start of the service from Psalm 95. Again, totally unprompted. Let's read some more verses in Psalm 95. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Words that are repeated subsequently in the book of Hebrews as well. The Egyptian slaves, freed from their slavery by the most miraculous of deliverances, never made it to Canaan. Why? They were disobedient. They didn't take God at his word. And as I was reading through this, the thought struck me that Bezalel was one of them. He didn't make it. He came out of Egypt. He was a freed slave, but he never saw Canaan. He never saw the promised land because of disobedience. You know, we can't rely on yesterday's obedience for tomorrow's test. What about Moses? Well, he didn't make it either. In Numbers chapter 20, this man who had followed out every minor detail of God's instructions didn't do what he was told. He did his own thing. 
the great leader had failed in what he had been instructed to do and was disobedient. Moses never made it. So what about us? Are we equipped to do a job? A number of years ago, the American pastor John Piper wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. His intention was to make the book a challenge to young people about what they should look to achieve in life and and what their aims should be. But it was a great surprise to Dr. Piper when he found out that one of the biggest responses was not from young people, but from the recently retired. It was a case of don't waste your retirement. So let me throw out a challenge to those of you at 60, 65. What are you doing? You've got a lifetime where you've been learning. So what are you doing with it? Do you want to settle down to a slow retirement? Well, why not pick up the pace, as Moses did when he was 80? 80, yes. Picked up the pace. Look for a young person who is willing for you to disciple them. Use your free time to visit, dare I say it, the old folks. Take the spare mornings that you now have to pray for missionaries. The options are endless, limitless. The question is, what are you going to do? Are you going to be obedient? Are you going to respond positively to the way that God has equipped you? Look at this table in front of us again. We see the price of disobedience here in the need for a sacrifice for sin. But we also see perfect obedience. We also see Jesus Christ choosing to take the road to the cross, each step going in perfect obedience. The obedience sacrifice was needed for disobedient sinners. So the job's done. I think there's a danger. I know if I'd been Bezalel or one of his team, there would be a great danger. Could you imagine looking at what's been done? That's my curtain. I did the gold in that altar. Great chance of pride starting to appear. But we go further. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 40 and look at some verses we didn't read. Exodus chapter 40. Verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. Verse 33, the last sentence of the verse says, And so Moses finished the work. Obedience again. But then we read on to these wonderful verses at the end of the book. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, during all their travels. So what happens when the cloud comes down? Can't see Bezalel's work anymore. What's on view? The glory of God. 
And this ultimately is what Bezalel was working to. He was working to the glory of God. His team could no longer boast in what had been done because it was obscured by the visible presence of God's glory. Is that how you see what we do? And I'm just not asking here about what you do in church. I'm asking, what about the day job? Is everything we do set towards the glory of God? Or is it for our own advancement? Is it for the betterment of our company or our organization? Do we have aspirations to that promotion that means we actually spend less time with our families and less time with God's people? Less time using the gifts that God has given us? Do we look for opportunities to serve in this church, as Brittany's pointed out already this evening? Or if you're visiting, what about your home church? Are you looking for those opportunities to advance God's glory, to work for the glory of God? I was very encouraged this week when I read the, the online version of Evangelicals Now. I don't know if the article was, was in the paper copy. If it was, I'm sure some of you have read it. There's a journalist working at the BBC by the name of Dan Walker. He's a sports journalist, and he's, he's now starting to make a name for himself presenting his own programs. But Dan Walker is also a Christian. And the point in the story that fascinated me was something that came up when he had his first interview for a national job. The interview was going well until he took the bold step of st- saying, well, I'm a Christian and I will not work on a Sunday. Well, we all know that in today's world there is no sport where the highest level does not happen on a Sunday. If you're a sports journalist and that's what you've got to cover, you would think you've got to work on a Sunday. But that was his principle. He wouldn't do it. He got the job. He couldn't explain how he got the job, but he did. Moved to his current role with the BBC. Still refuses to cover Sunday sport. Now, That's one example for one person. But what are the limits that we set for ourselves? Are we going to push ourselves more and more to climb the corporate ladder? Or do we want to work to the glory of God and nothing more? This morning, Liam encouraged us to tear up our own agenda and to follow God's agenda. As a church, we're entering a new era in the next month. There's much to be done to the glory of God. But there are gaps in the team. We don't have the people to do the work. The festival's only one part of it. There's a a list in the lounge notice board about what we need people to do in this place. But let's think a little further and, and let me be specific and address the men of this congregation. Within the near future, we're going to have another election for elders. Will the men of this church who are nominated to stand for election honestly say that they are being obedient to God? That those who have been equipped to take on the leadership role are willing to do so in obedience and willing to do so for the glory of God? Or, as we heard this morning, do we have the excuses already in our back pockets? They might be different. What's your excuse? I don't agree with that. Couldn't work with him. 
I can't teach. But as we found out this morning, they are all excuses because if God equips us, we have no excuse not to be obedient and not to work for his glory. So men, in particular, over the next few months, over the next year, let us really examine ourselves and consider whether we're being obedient. There's one, one thing that is really wonderful about this appearance of God when the glory of the cloud covers the, the tent of meeting. Just before Moses goes up into the mountain the first time to receive the law of God, the instruction is given. No one must touch the mountain. If you touch the mountain, you die. As Moses received the law of God, which found all men guilty, the place where he received it became a place of judgment. But yet, at the end of the chapter, <clears throat> in what we've read, there's a cloud appearing. And this time, the cloud covers the place where God's grace was. What was the tabernacle? It was the place where sacrifices were made. It was the place where the blood was brought in to make atonement for the people. It was the place where the failure of man to meet God's standard was dealt with. Which brings us back again to this table. This is the ultimate work that was done for the glory of God. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ was carried out to appease the wrath of God. Judgment required the sacrifice of the innocent for the guilty. But this table also reminds us that the place called Calvary, the cross of Christ, the place of judgment is also the place of grace. The place where we're reminded that sins are forgiving, forgiven and where the overwhelming reach of God's grace has reached down from heaven to deal with sin once and for all. So, what do you want to be? Do you still want to be the astronaut? Still want to be the vet? To be honest, I'm not really that interested in your choice of occupation. And to be honest, we shouldn't be that interested in our choice of occupation. But do you want to hear the call of God in your life? Do you want to obey God? Do you want to work towards the glory of God? As we come to communion this evening, let's ponder all these things in the light of the death of Christ, of the one who made it all possible. He was the Father's servant. He was obedient. And everything he did was to the glory of the Father. Let us come to this table, and while we do so, let's sing a hymn that we've been singing a lot recently. But I think it's an appropriate response. Take my life and let it be. Consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise.